Well, it's great to see everybody here on this uh, gorgeous weekend that uh, we have been given. Last weekend, there was uh, a little football game, and if you were among the 110 million people who were watching that, you know uh, that the Baltimore Ravens held on to defeat the San Francisco 49ers. Additionally, you know that in the first half it was all Ravens, and that's the way the second half opened. Uh, Jacoby Jones ran the kickoff back, and it looked like this might turn into a rout. And then uh, the power went off. The stadium was dark, and for 34 minutes uh, there was this uh, unplanned delay. And during those 34 minutes... Uh, The announcers, uh, scrambling to fill the dead airspace, speculated as to whether or not this could represent a turning point in the game, whether or not San Francisco might be able to marshal some kind of comeback. And in fact, uh, they did. Uh, After the break, they came roaring back and made it a really exciting game. Now, it's impossible to know whether or not that uh, intermission was the turning point. Sometimes you just can't tell these things. Other times you can. When the angel Gabriel showed up and spoke to Zechariah, when that angel broke the 400 years of silence from heaven and said, Zechariah, you and your wife, although you are well past childbearing ages, and and although she has never had a child, you are going to give birth to a son, and he is going to be the fulfillment of the prophecies of Malachi. He is going to be the one that's going to walk in the steps of Elijah. He is going to announce the coming of the Savior of the world. That was a turning point that couldn't be missed. And when that angel rolled forward and said to a little young, uh, poor, junior high girl named Mary, living in the, in the hills of Galilee, you have found favor with God, and you are going to give birth to the Son of God who will be the Savior of the world. That was a turning point for Mary. That was a turning point for the entire world. Sometimes we can't tell when these things are happening. Sometimes we can Sometimes the, uh, the changes that take place, the turning points, are big and dramatic and instantaneous, and sometimes they are imperceptible. Sometimes the turning points are turns in the right direction. Other times the turns are in the wrong direction. There's a lot that can be said about this. Here's what I want you to start by understanding. We're all on a path, and unless something turns us, we can pretty much figure out where we're headed. You are on a course, and unless you are turned from that course, we can, with some success, sort of chart where you're headed. The question is, are you headed in the right direction? Or do you need some sort of turning point, big or small? Is there a need for some kind of course correction? Uh, as I mentioned last week, I, I was in New York the week before. I was at, a, at a, a gathering around vocation and calling. 
And I had gone there to learn some things for men's fraternity, for, for talks, for a year from now. Um, I was a little bit surprised at some of the things I learned about myself. And I was also surprised about some of the things I learned about the Gospel of Luke, which has lots of turning points in it. In, in the first talk in this series, I said, look, the guy, Luke was, a, was a, uh, a follower of Christ. He was a medical doctor. He was the only Gentile uh, to write any of the books of the, of the Bible. And, and he was a travel companion of Paul's. And, and he set out to write an orderly account of the things that had happened. He wrote this to Theophilus, who I argued was a wealthy Greek government official and, and a new follower of Christ and also Luke's patron. He was funding the investigation that Luke was doing into the life and the work and the teaching and the claims of Christ. And I said that the gospel of Luke is unique in a handful of ways. Because of who it was written for, because of who wrote it, that there are things about the gospel of Luke that make it different from the gospels that were written to Matthew, Mark, or written by Matthew, Mark, and John. They're all telling the same story. They're telling the story about Christ, and they're telling the story in order to persuade people that Jesus is who he claimed to be the Son of God and the Savior of the world. But they have different angles on them. It's like watching different to six o'clock newscasts. Everybody has their own particular vantage point. Luke was writing for Gentiles. Luke was, was specifically writing an orderly account. He wanted to put everything in chronological order. Luke spent more time focused on things around women, around the poor, around the outcast. He spent more time focused on things that were medical, such as the claim of a virgin birth. He spent more time on a handful of things, including the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which means he ends up documenting lots of turning points in people's lives, moments when people change direction. The theological term for this is repenting. There's a lot more repenting that goes on in the gospel of Luke. Some people think that to repent means to feel sorry for your sin. That's actually not the theological definition. To repent means to change direction, to have a change of mind that is going to play out in a change of life. There's a lot of people who change direction, and Luke writes about that in the Gospel of Luke. And, and I want to pick up on that today. I want to leverage that. Uh, in, in an effort to prepare you for the changes that we're going to see as we go through the Gospel of Luke, and in order, very specifically, to challenge you to identify the turning points in your life and to ask the question, am I now headed in the right direction? Or does there need to be a, a course correction, big or small? This is a bit of an audible I mapped out sermons for the Gospel of Luke. This was not part of it. But uh, I, I feel like uh, there's, there's an opportunity here. And so essentially I'm sending you all along. 
and it's possible that uh, it's, it's more likely that we'll have a lot of incomplete passes, but uh, if you catch it, I think, I think you will put points on the board. So I want to I frame this around the idea of turning points, and I want to start by saying that there are six things that you should understand about them. Number one, uh, they turn you. Uh, do not confuse significant life events like marriage with a turning point. Marriage is significant. It's big. I'm not downplaying it at all. But for the most part, marriage is sort of the next step on a path you're already on. You've met somebody. You've fallen in love. You've, you've started to date, you're dating exclusively, you get engaged, you get married. There's a, there's a path there. Often that path will lead to children. It's a, it's a trajectory that you're on. In that sense, a wedding, a marriage doesn't turn you. You were already turned. Additionally, a turning point is, is not simply an emotional experience that, that gets uh, sort of lots of good intentions. We might have, you know, a real, a, a real motivation to change, but if we don't change, that's not a turning point. When, it, when it's all said and done, a lot more is said than done. There are moments when we actually turn our course. Number two... Jesus is the ultimate turning point. Christ stands in the middle of the road. There is a fork, and he says in one sense, right, you're either with me or you're not. Right? I'm claiming to be God, King, Lord, Messiah, Savior. I'm claiming to have been here from eternity past. I'm claiming that I showed up here to rescue you. You either, you're either with me or you're not. And I, I, I point this out because from the very earliest days, the church has had to be really clear. Out deuce, out homo malus. Jesus is either God, out deuce, or he's a bad man. He's not a good teacher. He's not a great example. He's not, a, not an ethical leader. He, he makes claims that sort of take that option away. So he's either Lord or he's not. And if he's not, he's either, he knows he's not and he's lying about it, or he's, he's very massively delusional. So C.S. Lewis's trilemma, Lord, liar, lunatic, Jesus is a turning point. He wants to turn us. He wants to turn us towards himself. Number three. There are lots of other turning points. Some are big and some are small. Some are radical and some are slight. Paul's conversion is the example of a radical turning point in someone's life. He is on the road to Damascus where he wants to stop the spread of Christianity. He's already been involved in killing one person who was trying to spread it. He now has sort of got papers from his superiors. He's headed uh, across the, you know, uh, he's headed away because he has heard that, that, that the Christians are spreading. And he wants to stop this. And as he is traveling, 
we hear that Jesus, speaking from heaven, knocks him down, blinds him with light, and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And when when Saul, who will be renamed Paul, gets up from that moment, gets up from being knocked down, he heads in exactly the opposite direction. From trying to stop the spread of Christianity, he will dedicate the rest of his life to trying to promote the spread of the claims of Christ. So there are big conversions. There are big turning points. Again, the the word here is uh, repent. Not feel bad, not feel guilt, but turn. And when we when we actually repent, it, we, we march in a different direction. In the Gospel of Luke, later on, we will see in chapter 3 that Luke makes this connection. Uh, he's not writing about Paul yet, but uh, he's, he's capturing what John the Baptist says. And in uh, Luke 3, verse uh, 7 and following, John, who's... Um, not remarkably um, politically correct in his, uh, in his addressing, says to the crowds who've come down to be baptized, you brood of vipers, okay, you rattlesnakes, uh, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The people say, what should we do? He says, uh, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. In other words, John the Baptist is saying, if you're serious about this, if you're serious about getting right with God, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't just get baptized. Move in the other direction. And your life will play out in different ways. That's what is expected. And sometimes that happens in dramatic ways like it happens with Paul. Sometimes the course correction is rather small. Uh, About five or six years ago, uh, I went down to Dallas to meet with a guy by the name of Bob Buford. Buford is the president of the Peter Drucker Foundation and the author of a book called Halftime. And Drucker had made the observation that 100, 200 years from now, when people looked at back at this moment in time, what they will marvel about is not how computers changed the world, is not how biomedical advances extended our life. They, they will not marvel at that. What they will marvel at is how many people were given a second half to their life that most people before them never got and yet wasted it. Drucker says that 200 years from now, people will look back and say, oh my goodness, all these people... Have, given, have been given another 30 years of, of vibrant life and opportunities to make a difference, and most waste it. That was uh, part of the impetus 
for Buford to, uh, to set a different course for his life. He writes this book, Halftime, saying, look, when you're, when you're approaching 50, you have as many good years to give and to serve as you have already had as an adult. You can, you can run for another 30 years serving. And these should be the best years because you now know who you are. You have an under, you've got a network. You oftentimes have resources. You should go change the world. You should move from significance, uh, from, from success to significance. And so he, he makes this call, right? Most people are not getting this done, and he holds these little workshops and says, what are you going to do with the second half of your life? And this, by the way, is, is what has motivated us to start SageWorks. It's because as a pastor, I look on and I see lots of people who, who become em- empty nesters and who, who do not leverage that in ways that I believe ultimately they're going to wish they had. I see lots of people who, who work on getting a 15 handicap down to a 9. And in light of eternity, I don't think that's what you're going to be excited about. I got a single digit handicap. I think you're going to look and say, what might I have done? With this life and the tremendous resources and blessings and health and vitality and talent that I had. I believe the future of the church is going to hinge on whether or not we can mobilize those half-timers to actually move into significance. And to live and love and serve and give and lead in ways that will make a difference. So that's what's behind that. That was what was behind Buford. And I went down there five years ago and... I was in my late 40s, and I came away with what I called a 15% course correction. It wasn't a 180-degree change. But I, I saw things more clearly and said, I need to stop doing this, I need to stop doing this, I need to do more of this. And, and this, is, this is what I need to do from this point forward. It's not forever, but it was the course correction I need. Some course corrections are big, some course corrections are small. The next point to make is, small is big over time. Small course corrections, if they truly alter your course, are big over time. If you get in a plane in Chicago and you're headed for Los Angeles and the pilot is off by five degrees, you will either end up in Mexico or San Francisco, but you're not going to L.A., right? 5% over time ends up making a big difference. Point number five. Some turning points are impossible to avoid. Some turning points are impossible to avoid. Those are the kind that we've seen so far in our study of Luke. When when the angel shows up announcing that God is going to do something, Right, to Zechariah and to Mary, they have no choice but to pay attention. They're not going to miss this turning point. The only thing that they control in this situation is their response. God is changing their life. Now they get to decide how they will respond. In some situations, that's the way it goes for us. There are turning points that we don't choose. 
The company is downsizing, and I have just been told that I don't have a job. My uh, spouse is not willing to keep working on our marriage, and I've just been told that uh, she or he is going to leave. I, I'm, I don't have the ability by myself to change this. I've been, I've been handed uh, a turning point. Whether Some of them are good, but some of these turning points are rough. And we only control our response. But the final point about turning points, most of the time we have choices to make. Sometimes we don't, but most of the time we do. We have options, and we make decisions. And then those decisions make us. We make choices and head down certain paths, and those paths form us. They shape our soul. They make us into different people. We choose, much of the time, the path that we're going to head down. And it's possible to make the wrong choice. It's possible to miss the exit. I have a a good friend, and when he was just out of college, he and a buddy drove uh, to New Jersey. And on their way back from New Jersey to Ohio, uh, my my friend, his name's Roger, my friend's friend... Uh, was driving the first leg. Drove for four hours out of New Jersey, headed towards Ohio. Then uh, he gets out of the car, says, I'm, I'm tired, you drive now. He goes in the back seat and goes to sleep. My friend gets in the driver's seat, proceeds to get back on the highway going the wrong direction, and drives for three hours until his friend wakes up in the back seat and is seeing signs for, you know, Pennsylvania or Philadelphia and going, what? It's possible to miss the exit. It's possible to be headed down the wrong path. And so the question I want to ask you is, are you headed in the right direction? And do you know? Or do you need a course correction? And some of you are thinking, well, I don't know. I haven't worried about it before. Now I'm worried about it. I don't, I don't know. How would I know if I'm headed on the right path? Well, um, if you listen, right, if, you, if, you, if you do the right things, then I, I think we've got great confidence that God is, is he wants the best for us. But oftentimes we're not paying any attention. I've made this point before, and I realize that at some point it will sound either like scolding or whining, but it's, it's, a, real, uh, it's a real deal with the devil. A, a fool's trade that we have made to give up the Sabbath and replace it as we have. A hundred years ago, this country had a Sabbath. Sabbath was for the restoration of your soul. Sabbath rest was not about taking a nap on Sunday afternoon. It was about restoring who you were. It was about looking at your life and asking the question, am I on the right path? Did I miss a turn? How did I do this week? Did I live in light of my values? 
What's coming up? How should I think about these things? That was the purpose of the Sabbath, to make certain that our priorities were right, to realign our heart and soul. Fifty years ago, we gave up the Sabbath. We traded it in for Sundays. Sundays were not for the restoration of our soul. Sundays were to amuse ourselves. Right? It, was, it was not to think about the week. It's to not think. It's Sunday. I don't have to think. I'm not going to think about my job. Why would I think about my job? We amuse ourselves, quite literally. To muse means to think. You add the A in front of it. It negates it, right? A theist believes in God, and a theist does not believe in God. We put our minds on hold. I'm not going to think about who I am, where I am, what's going on around me. I'm going to amuse myself. I'm going to watch TV. I'm not going to be engaged. And then about 10 years ago, we traded Sundays in for weekends, And weekends are for catching up. Weekends are are, are for getting the things done we couldn't get done during the week. Weekends are now, Sunday mornings are now for soccer and for hockey and for for squeezing out more ways to get ahead. And here's, here's the challenge. What that means is we're now moving faster and faster. And we could be on the wrong path. You could have missed your exit. A hundred miles ago, but you were so busy going as fast as you can, you don't realize you're driving back to New Jersey when you're supposed to be headed to Ohio. So, I, I want to I give you a Sabbath exercise. I'm going to give you an assignment today. And that assignment is to look back at your own life and to chart the turning points. This is part of uh, one of the exercises that we did at this assignment. I mentioned last week I wrote a letter of surrender to God. One of the other exercises was to chart the turning points in our life. And it's easier to just show you a couple of these than it is to try and explain it. So we have, um, we have one coming up here. This is Moses's life story. And I made this pretty simple, just highlighting a couple of the big turning points for Moses. As you may remember, he is born during one of the first uh, Jewish pogroms. The Pharaoh worried that there are too many many Jewish slaves, uh, that they're growing stronger. He orders the Hebrew midwives to kill all the little baby boys that are born. Moses is born during this period of time. His mother makes the very faithful uh, decision that she's not going to let her son be killed, but she knows she can't raise him, so she puts him in the wicker basket and floats him down the Nile. That's a big turning point for Moses. He's not killed as an infant. He is put in a basket and floated down the Nile River. The next turning point we see for Moses is that he is, uh, he is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He is taken into the palace And he is now going to be raised as a prince of Egypt. A lot happens, but we'll look to the age of about 40 when there's another turning point. Moses, uh, with anger, righteous anger, at an Egyptian taskmaster who is beating uh, a Hebrew slave, uh, 
lets that righteous anger become sin, and he ends up killing the Egyptian taskmaster. When this is discovered, he has to flee, and he goes out into the desert where he will spend the next 40 years. He's going to go see relatives. He's going to get married. He's going to start a family. He's going to go from being, the fi- from being you know, sort of next in line to run Egypt to now being a shepherd out in the desert. And then there's another big turning point in his life when God calls him, right? The burning bush. And God says, you are to go and to liberate the people, right? And I will go with you. And from that point on, then a whole bunch of things follow. He gets on a very radical new trajectory, and we're going to see the ten plagues. We're going to see the exodus, the parting of the Red Sea. We're going to have him going to Mount Sinai, getting the Ten Commandments. We're going to have all these things happening. And then there's another turn when they accept uh, the majority report from the spies, right? They've, they've got the law. They're now supposed to go back into the promised land that God had initially given to Abraham and his descendants. But uh, they send 12 spies into the promised land. Ten of them come back saying, the people are giants. We can't do this. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, oh, yes, we can. God is with us. This will work. But the, the majority report is accepted. And so the Jews will spend the next 40 years in the desert, wandering around. There's a little turning point we have when he uh, sort of uh, refigures his leadership style based on the advice of his father-in-law Jethro, the first management consultant on record, and so uh, that that sort of puts him down a different path. And then we have this uh, bad turning point where he grows proud, and because he is proud, he's not able, not allowed by God to enter the promised land. So this is an example of uh, turning points in Moses' life. And, you know, if Moses were going to look back on this, I mean, one of the things, and this works so perfectly well in his life, is that we see God's providential hand, that some of the worst moments actually will be redeemed and become some of the best things that could happen to him. What would be the training you would ideally want for someone that's going to lead a nation for 40 years wandering around in the desert? Well, you would probably want them to get the best training in the land about how to, how to lead a million people. Well, he got that in Pharaoh's household the first 40 years. It would also be convenient to actually have spent a lot of time in that desert learning how to live off the land. He got that in the next 40 years. So he could look back and see the turns, but also see God's hand in the turns, profoundly preparing him. I think he might be surprised at how few big turning points there are in his life. Here's a second example. This is my life. A few more ups and downs. I'm more familiar with my story than I am with Moses's, so... um, One of the turning points for me happens when my parents send me to school, to kindergarten, when I'm four. It means that uh, until late in my junior year, I will always be a little uh, twerp, emotionally behind, little uh, small kid. And that changes a whole lot of things, especially for boys. 
Um, there was a turning point for when my fourth grade teacher uh, called me aside, Mrs. Buck, and she, she gave me a special assignment and said, I think you're the only one in this class that can do this assignment. It, it, it literally, I've looked back at this, I don't know whether she said that to every kid in the, in the class. <laughs> I, do, I, don't know, I, I don't know whether she actually saw something in me or not, but it cost her 15 seconds of encouragement. And it changed my life. I came away from that thinking that I could do things. I came away from thinking that I don't know what's going on, I'm sort of behind, to thinking maybe I'm one of, maybe I've, I've got gifts and abilities that I could use. It was a huge turning point for me. Uh, Rick Cappert uh, flattened me. This was uh, in an eighth grade football game. And uh, I, I, I actually played uh, middle linebacker in seventh grade. I was defensive captain. But I weighed uh, 88 pounds. And in eighth grade, everybody was really growing. And I still weighed 88 pounds. And I didn't get in. There was now, uh, I didn't get in. I didn't get in. I didn't get any chances. Finally, I got put in uh, as safety. And there was... Here was Rick Cappert. It was a scrimmage. He was a fullback. He's coming up through the line. Two guys are already on him, and he's just set up nice and perfect. And I just think, this is my moment of glory. I am going to plaster this guy. And I hit him with everything I had. And uh, I, I knocked myself out briefly. <laughs> and when I got, when I sort of came to, I realized Rick had run another five yards after I hit him. And I literally got up and said, yeah, a tennis. Uh, th- this is, this is, I do not have, uh, I, I have to think differently. I- I- these were, these were difficult times. Again, I- I'm a, I start high school at just over five feet tall. I weigh 90 pounds. Uh, you know, you, you're, you're not popular with the girls, uh, at, at that point. And it was a hard time for me. That's part of what leads into me searching and coming to faith in Christ. Uh, I make a decision as I get out of high school, going into college. I remember it well, remember where I was, saying, I'm going to start taking risks. I'm going to push myself. I'm going to face fears. i got to do this. And it was, in terms of my manufacturing a turn, I think it was the most significant one I actually set out to manufacture. <clears throat> Uh, I interned in a hospital uh, my sophomore year in college, and they thought I was a second-year medical student, so not only got to help with an autopsy and ride the ambulance, I actually assisted in surgeries. Um, (laughs) Scary for everybody I know, but uh, it was very, uh, it was a great internship in that I came away saying, I do not want to be a doctor. Everybody's sick. I mean, I don't know when I was supposed to pick up on that point, but I picked up on it there. And it was, it was, uh, it was a low point because I had always wanted to be a doctor. And now I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, later, I will feel a call to ministry. Uh, a high point, obviously, meeting Sherry. I, I have this higher than Christ, that, that feels a little wrong, but it, at the same time, that's how it felt. My decision to accept Christ was made, um, there was no angels singing the Alleluia Chorus when I, when I stepped over the line. 
Um, so meeting Sherry and getting married were high points. I had uh, uh, several people, again, like Mrs. Buck, who turned my life. Milo Lindell, a placement officer uh, at Trinity, got me a job. My application was in the interesting but never to be looked at again category, and he got it out and got me uh, a job. We decided to start a family. Uh, I vaguely remember being somewhat involved in the discussion of that. Uh, and then... Uh, unable to handle problems on my own, about four or five years into marriage, we hit a difficult spot. Jerry was not happy. And we eventually go to see um, a marriage counselor. And I am, I am convinced that this is all about her. And uh, the marriage counselor in one session says, I need to meet with you again. I thought she was going to say, I think you have been very noble in all of this. And... <laughs> She just, uh, she, she lets me have it, and I am, I am really knocked down. And it takes a while for me to figure out how to think differently about conflict and to learn some new skills. It was a turning point in our marriage and in, our, and in my life. Uh, I almost, I, 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 we needed more money. I was not making enough money as a college pastor to support now a growing family. So I'm looking for other ways to make money. Uh, and it comes down to being a reserve uh, chaplain in, in the military or to writing articles. And I went, I went way down the path with the military and then said, I'm going to try writing next. That was a turning point. I quit a job. That's a turning point. You can see there's up and down the Steves, two, two guys, Steve Hayner and Steve Brin, when I uh, start consulting, they rapidly advance uh, my profile as a consultant. And they, I get lots and lots and lots of work because of these two guys called back into ministry uh, to come to this church. I, it was, it's a, listed as a low point because at the time it felt... Uh, I loved consulting. I loved what I was doing. I wasn't looking to do something else. The callback was very clear, but I thought um, it wasn't what I was going to do. And so it felt bad. It doesn't feel bad now. I'm very glad for that turning point in that call. Here's the point. I, I can look back at this, and I, I see God's hand in things that, that at the time and even years later didn't seem good. The fact that I was small all the way through school, uh, I now look at it and say, that pushed me down and formed a fire and a resolve to just keep getting back up and trying. And the fact that I was small and, and so largely uh, didn't date in high school, I now look back and say, you know, that probably spared me a lot of pain that I might have have things might have gone differently. Uh, I, I look back and I'm surprised at how few turning points there really are. I'm surprised at who turned me and who didn't. Right? Some of the most significant people in my life haven't turned me. We've been, I've been on the trajectory and they join and we walk alongside, but we're headed in the same path. They don't move me. <clears throat> the guy who did these these workshops that I was a part of, he's done 600. There's, you know, 25 tools that you go through. He's done 600. He said, having looked at 600 of these, he's very aware that uh, many people make decisions in their 20s that set them back 20 years. He's very aware that some people never face their fears and get held back. 
Uh, he's aware that you can turn. He says, I've done, I've done these life plans. I've done these things for people in their 90s and seen them turn. It's, ne- it's never too late. So I want, in part because we're going to see turning points in other people's lives as we go through the Gospel of Luke, I want you to have this vocabulary. I want you to think this way. But mostly I want you to do this. I want you to share this in your small group. I want you to share this with others. I want you to look back at your life. I want you to go third person and figure out where the turns happened. And I want you to say, am I headed down the right path? Or is the, am I missing a turn? Big or small? Right? Should I make some course corrections? The Holy Spirit is moving. We're going to look next week at more ways that he guides and directs us. The Holy Spirit moves us. God will direct your path if you seek him. But, uh, you know, this is exactly the kind of Sabbath exercise we desperately need today. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for guiding and directing us. Thank you for Luke. We pray that you would help us uh, to make the course corrections that need to be made. I pray especially for those who are perhaps heading the wrong direction on the second point, um, to not understand your love on display in your son and the difference that he has made. I pray for others who've been moving fast and have not really made many course corrections in a while. I pray that you would guide and direct. Father, draw us to yourself. Put us on the right path. We pray this in Christ's name.